This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. You guys excited about studying God's Word together? Yes. And turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Just hold your place there in Proverbs chapter 6 for just a moment. We're doing this four-week series on money and the glory of God. I think the, the older I get and the longer I follow Jesus and the more I read the Bible, there are times that I'm, I'm kind of shocked at just how relevant it is 2,000 or 5,000 years after the fact. That you're reading and you're, you're saying, I nev- wow, God actually covers this? <laughs> and, and when you approach this subject on money and work, you, you find that the Bible talks about these things so much more than sometimes we may think. And, and then it causes me to think about how we compartmentalize our lives so uh, distinctly. Um, we, 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 put, we put the God box here on Sunday morning, and so the things of God are church stuff. That's what happens in these four walls for an hour or two a week or in a community group during the week. And so that's the spiritual side of me. But all the other stuff in life, whether it's work, recreation, money, just the things of everyday life, it's kind of like that's divorced from spirituality. That's divorced from the divine. And so if there's nothing else that happens in these four weeks that we're talking about money and work, for the glory of God. I hope that you at least see that God, when He saves you and me, He saves us comprehensively. And that He doesn't want our lives now to be lived compartmentally. But what we do on Sunday morning and what we do in our quiet times, that is to fuel every aspect of our existence, every corner of our domain. And so I hope that you see that. And so in this series so far, we have looked at uh, earning money for the glory of God, and we we laid down a biblical theology of work and how God cares about how, what we, uh, cares more about how we work than necessarily what we do as long as it is legal. (laughs) Um, Last week, we looked at spending money for the glory of God and that God is glorified by handling money well. And not being an overspender, but also not being a hoarder. This week we're going to focus in on saving money. And so the question may be as we start, what is the Bible even talking about? Does it even talk about saving? And hopefully by the end of our time today, you will see that it does, and it does a lot. Here's what I want to do this morning, and you can look, just look at a cursory glance at your uh, notes, your outline today. We're going to look at three major points, and then some... Uh, supporting points under those three major points. The first point is going to be a big picture theological truth that we see in in the Bible about saving money. The other two are more cautionary And and that's where we want the Lord to work in our hearts to see if we're falling into one of these places that could be a pitfall for us, a a, a pothole in the road on our financial paths. Okay, that's the goal. So we're going to look at this overarching truth and then two cautionary truths in response to that and and specifically thinking about saving money. Proverbs chapter 6. 
Proverbs chapter 6, there are a lot of practical warnings, a lot of practical pieces of advice. And in Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 6, here is what the scriptures say. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. You say, well, what's a sluggard? It, it's a lazy person. All right, that's, that, that's what it means. Go to the ant, you lazy one, and consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Well, at least the Bible doesn't mince words. The Bible kind of gets in our faces sometimes and definitely does here few things that we could take away from this passage. One is we could go all the way back to the first week when we talked about earning money for the glory of God. This is another one of those supporting texts that we could use to demonstrate that God has wired human beings for work and that if, if, if the animal kingdom knows this and does it well, how much more should we as men and women created in the image of God have a good work ethic and, and do that well? But another point that we can take from this is preparation. I mean, did you see that in verses 7 and 8? Without having anyone telling her to do it, the ant prepares and gathers, makes preparation. And I'm not going to go into all the biological things and, uh, and things that happen in the animal kingdom uh, for uh, to sustain life and to prepare and things like that. But the animal kingdom even knows this, that there is a time, there is a time to plant, there's a time to prepare, there's a time to harvest, and, and they, they actually put things away for the next season. And so I want you to see this big picture truth here, and we're going to see some more passages in just a moment, is that a wise steward glorifies God by saving money. It's just a simple truth. And I would even ask you in your heart of hearts today, do you want to be a wise steward? Remember last week we talked about how God is the owner of everything and we are the managers or we are the stewards. So, if we're, so we're all stewards one way or the other. But don't you want to be a wise steward and not a foolish steward? You might even ask yourself that question right now. Do I want to be wise? Well, if you want to be wise... We're going to look at more instruction from God's word today. So why stewards glorify God by saving money? A couple of points here. One, we should save money through hard work. Saving isn't easy. Can I just say that from the, from the get-go? Saving isn't easy. It is far easier to cash a check or to deposit a check and spend it and to spend it all. And if I have the money in the bank, why not just spend it and not save up for a rainy day or for emergencies. And, and so saving is not easy. Saving is hard work in and of itself. But the means by which, the means through which we should save by and large is through hard, diligent work, just like the ant in Proverbs 6. 
You see, some people play the lottery or send in every return for the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. So they may, may end up being one of those people who get $5,000 a week for the next 20 years of their life. And that might work for one out of every 100 million of us. But for the rest of us in God's economy, the way God has designed us, the way he has designed finances, is that we would work hard, we would save, and we would prepare for the future or gain wealth by simple hard work, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year by year. In order to do that, it might cost us extra hours. It might cost us to pick up an extra shift once a week. Maybe you need a second part-time job to get you uh, over the hump. But we glorify God by saving money through hard work. But secondly, we should save money through diligent planning. It's really difficult to save money if you don't have a plan. And I I don't even mean, it doesn't even have to be complex. It could be very simple, but that you just have goals that you're working towards. Maybe someone's walking alongside of you and helping you formulate those goals and how to reach those goals. Proverbs chapter 21, if you just turn over a few chapters in that book in verse 5, the scripture says this, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. I shared my own testimony last week of how in my 20s, there was a lot of hastiness in dealing with money, a lot of irresponsibility, a lot of living in the moment and being an overspender and getting into massive debt that I spent much of my 20s paying off before I could get to my 30s to really start preparing for the future. I would love to spare you that today, but, but use my story, use my boneheadedness to, to make better choices for your life. And, and if you're here today and you've already made a lot of bad choices, I want to repeat what I said at the end of worship last week. It is never too late to start doing the wise thing. It's never too late to start doing the wise thing. And so we should save money through diligent planning. You see, the fool overspends. The fool gets into unnecessary debt over and over again. The fool, when he gets money, lets it burn a hole in his pocket and he prepares nothing for the future. But the Proverbs tells us here in chapter 25 that the wise man, the wise woman, has abundance because of his or her diligent planning. So we glorify God by planning for future needs and opportunities, future emergency needs, future expected needs. We, we glorify God by preparing for that through diligent, diligent planning. Thirdly, we should save money through gradual investment. This is key. This is a key biblical truth this morning. Each of us... Our human nature is to find the quick, easy way out. That, that's, our, that's our humanity on full display. We don't want to do what's hard. We don't want to do what's going to take some time. But listen to what the scriptures say in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 11. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. 
this is probably a really good verse to be a thematic verse for saving money in God's economy for his people. And we've already talked about the, the get-rich-quick schemes. But the writer of Proverbs also warns us against gaining wealth in a hasty, and the, and the wording here could even mean in a dishonest manner. But notice the converse. Whoever gathers little by little over a long period of time, they will be in abundance. They will be blessed In other words, we could say this, don't wait until it's too late. I mean, don't don't look at age 60 and say, oh, I should start preparing for retirement. We we should start saving sooner rather than later. Um, Some people wake up at age 55 and think, oh man, where am I going to live? How am I going to pay the medical bills They hope they can find some sort of quick investment or interest-bearing account that can make up for lost time. But here's the deal. You would have to invest $10,000 at 30% interest in order to make up for all that lost time. No one, I don't, look, I'm not an economist. I'm not a financial planner, but I know this. No one gets that much interest unless you're a loan shark or a mobster, but that's like a whole different story and God doesn't smile upon that. So that's not a good track for saving money. Proverbs 13, 11 implies to us that we should begin saving early. We should even be teaching our kids the value of earning money through chores and teaching them to set aside a part of it for savings, a part of it for offering and giving, and then a part of it for spending and using for their enjoyment. As we begin begin adulthood, it may just be $5 a week or $10 a week. You may start out with a small amount that you're putting aside, but it's about the practice of doing that and getting in the discipline of doing that. It's never about amount. It's about the discipline. It's about the process. Consider this. Here's where you see the biblical truth really being played out. This principle of gaining little by little over a long period of time and what it does. Did you know this? That if you have a 30-year fixed mortgage, simply paying $100 a month extra on your mortgage will drop that 30-year mortgage to 20 saving you thousands of dollars in interest. It's little by little over a long period of time. A Roth IRA. A Roth IRA is a really good way to save money. Maybe you would look into that today. But do you know that if today, if you are someone starting out right out of college, if you set up a Roth IRA and give $300 a month to that over the course of 30 years, it will bear around a million dollars by the time you get to a retirement. And I'm not here to necessarily endorse or advocate for any specific program. All I'm trying to demonstrate is that little by little over a long period of time means blessing for us as human beings. And it's what the scriptures are teaching us. There are many ways to save and invest for the future. And there are financial counselors and and, and Christian leaders who can help us with that. But don't miss the point. The teaching of Scripture is that we glorify God by saving money, not trying to get rich quick, but working hard, 
planning diligently, and gradually saving consistently over time. That's the biblically wise way. Now for the two cautions. Because here is where it becomes a heart issue for us as human beings. And I don't want us to miss our heart here. When we start thinking about saving money and preparing for the future, it's a responsible, God-given thing to do. We just established that. So we've heard that, right? You're with me? Because of our humanity, it's also a very dangerous thing to consider. And here's why. Because each one of us is tempted to focus in, in on, trust in what I myself am building. And I can build myself my own security and leave God completely out of the equation. And so as a result of that, we also need to hear two cautionary warnings from the scriptures about saving money. Number one, here's the first caution, and I'm going to do it in a more positive way. Wise stewards guard against saving too little. Okay, so here's the first caution based on what we've just learned about saving money. Wise stewards, if you want to be wise, you're going to guard against saving too little. Last week, I told you some of the staggering statistics of the average American's financial state today. That based on an analysis of government data, the average American household owes six to $7,000 in credit card debt. And a CNBC study tells us that 80% of us live paycheck to paycheck. 80% live paycheck to paycheck. And about 40% say that we don't have enough money in the bank to cover an emergency of $1,000 or less. And so... There's a struggle there that it's not written into our DNA to save for the future, to set aside for the unplanned or the unexpected. And so for a moment, let me just zero in on three specific, uh, for three specific ways in which I would encourage us to save. Here's where, we could, where we're going to be very practical for a moment. Number one, we should save for unexpected emergency needs. All right, let's get real for a moment. See if I can get a witness in the house. Cars break down. Come on. The kids get sick. Uh-huh. The taxman calleth. Oh, man. Right? The thing is, life happens, and the unexpected comes upon us. Like, like we, don't, we don't plan and say, well, you know, on Tuesday, probably my car is going to break down on the side of 95 going north, and I'm going to be stranded for three hours, and it's probably going to cost eight or $900 to get that fixed. I should set aside some money for that. You know, emergencies aren't planned. We don't plan emergencies. It's the unexpected. And so, so we should be about setting aside an emergency fund for those types of things when they happened. A lot of people will suggest take $1,000. Right now, if you don't have $1,000 set aside, save up $1,000, put it in a bank account, just take the cash out of the bank, 
put it behind a picture frame in the den, whatever you got to do, but just try to make that your immediate goal to save for those emergency needs so that when they happen, it's there. Many of us have heard of Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Dave Ramsey, the Christian financial counselor, says Murphy lives with people who don't handle money well. <clears throat> but he also notes a cool thing. That when a person starts to get control of his money, Murphy tends to leave them alone. And so I want to encourage you, save for unexpected emergency needs. Number two, we should save for anticipated short-term needs. Okay? We, we all have these needs that we know are going to be coming up in the next couple of years. For example, you may know that you're going to need to get a new car or maybe a second car for the family. You and your spouse are thinking about starting a family, and so a baby is going to come into the equation and start expanding that grocery and household bill and with medical bills. You may be planning renovations on your house or a family vacation that you want to take this year or next summer. It could be anything like that that, that is more short-term in nature, and we know they're coming up in the next year or two. It'd be a good idea to start saving up for those things. And brothers and sisters, here is where a radical departure from our culture exists. Our culture says, get it now. So you have longer to enjoy it. If you have to go in debt to get it, just go in debt to get it. And that's where a lot of us get in trouble because we do that over and over and over again. And then before we know it, we have so much debt, we don't know how to pay it. Here's a truth. Just because you're approved to get something doesn't mean that you should. Just because the bank approves you doesn't mean that it's wise to do that. And so here's the radical truth that I believe that would honor God and how we can train our hearts to be more focused on Him in these moments. Saving up for these types of items teaches us the great value of delayed gratification. And there's an aspect of it that you will enjoy those things more and there will be more spiritual pleasure and personal pleasure knowing that it was something that you diligently planned for, patiently waited for, and, hard, and, and in a hard work ethic you worked for in order to receive them. So we should save for anticipated short-term needs, but we should also save for anticipated long-term needs. Needs like your, your, your child's college tuition in 18 years from now or 10 years from now. It, it, it could be a down payment on a house. It takes a long time to save up 30, 40, 60 thousand dollars. It could be for your retirement, a 401k or an IRA of some sort. But there are long-term needs that we should be thinking about. So here's what I want you to be thinking. When we think about saving, there, there are basically kind of three ways we can categorize that. An immediate emergency fund, saving up for, an, for emergencies that we just put aside right now, that should be our immediate thing that we're thinking about. Secondly, for short-term needs that we know that we're anticipating in the coming years. And then also for more long-term things. And, and if there are ways in which you need help with this thinking about it, please reach out to someone. This isn't a how-to seminar. This is a, this is a sermon 
preaching the biblical truth about saving. I'm trying to give you a little bit to work with, but for many of us, we need a lot more specifics to think through them. And so if the Lord is working in your heart here, go towards action and don't just suppress that and say, I can never do this because you'll just live in a lifetime of regret. Okay, so the first cautionary warning here is wise stewards guard against saving too little. But let's look at the converse. Wise stewards also guard against saving too much. Wise stewards also guard against saving too much. Go with me to the book of Luke and let's hear the master himself, Jesus Christ, as he tells us a parable about a man who saved too much and put his hope in his riches and his work and forgot all about God. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13, the scriptures say this. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. First of all, it's never a good idea to go to Jesus and tell him to tell anybody to do anything. That's just a side commentary. But Jesus humors him and he says to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, Jesus knew this man's heart. He knew the covetousness that existed. And just as he knew this man's heart, he knows your heart and he knows my heart today. So he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have now here... I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is a very probing parable, isn't it? It's a very probing parable because it exposes our heart that, that longs for stuff, but it also exposes our heart that is personified by self-preservation and self-adequacy. That I am adequate in and of myself I am the master of my own domain and I am the one who makes everything happen in my life. There are some truths that we learn here from this parable that I believe are very relevant to you and to me, especially in America. Because in America, we have so many means that we can actually work with, so many means through which we can build wealth and get resources. And we also have so many resources by which we can save. And so because we have so much of this at our disposal, we could convince ourselves today that we can save so much that we just become so self-sufficient that I have no need for God at all. And it's not actually God who provides for me at all. It's my own hard work and my own ingenuity and my good planning to gain wealth that gets me what I get. So let me show you what this parable is going to teach us to challenge us here. Things to, truths to remember. Number one, remember that God is the source of all your money. 
So as you're saving, as you're preparing, which the Bible calls us to do, remember that God is the source of all your money. Now in verse 16, there's no, there are no details of the man's labor, his toil, or his investment. No details about his hard work ethic. Now we can assume that he did work hard to get what he got. It doesn't say that he won the lottery. But look at what the scriptures do teach us. The land produced plentifully. Friends, who causes the land to produce plentifully? Who causes crops to grow or not to grow? It is God. You see, even in our hard work, even in our diligent planning, we have nothing if God is not giving the fruit of our labor. God is the one who is the ultimate source of our money and our resources and our planning. But in Jesus' story, the man gives no recognition to God. As a matter of fact, the man makes it clear that everything is all about himself. How do we know this? Because six times in this parable, we see the word I. And then four or five more times, we see the word my. And so in this man's economy, it was all about I, 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 my, my, my. I am the center of my own domain. I'm the master and producer of it. Implicit in Jesus' teaching is his expectation that we acknowledge him as the ultimate provider of everything we work for and everything we have. From the least of your possessions to the greatest, God is your supplier. A second, <clears throat> a second truth in this parable. We should save in a way that still demonstrates trust in God. Save in a way that still demonstrates trust in God. Now in Jesus' story, he says that there was a rich man. Let's just stop there. Now it's popular to castigate the rich in today's America. But remember this. God is no more against the rich simply because they are rich any more than he's for the middle class simply because they live in the middle class. It's always a matter of the heart with God. And that's the indictment against this man in the parable. Not that he was wealthy, but that he had a heart that was bent away from God. And that he put his trust and his hope and his worship in his resources and his wealth and not in God. So for us, we must also guard against worshiping what we have or putting too undue of an emphasis on it. We must also guard against saving so much or hoping so much in what we've saved that our trust is in our own storehouses or our own bank accounts or our own 401ks or IRAs. Here's, here's the line. <clears throat> there is a line between responsible preparation on the one hand and selfish preservation on the other. And in our legalistic mindsets, you would love for me today to tell you where that line exists. Wouldn't it be great if we just had it spelled out? Here's the line. You can only save this much. Or you can only make this much. We think that in our legalism. But God gives us enormous freedom to build wealth, to spend wealth, whether it's this much or this much. 
And in the freedom of the Holy Spirit, we must take the wisdom that he's given us and operate wisely. And so there's a line there. And I can't tell you exactly where that line is in your life. God wants to do business in your heart to help examine your heart to see where you are today. And it's not by accident that when Luke is writing this biography of Jesus, that he puts this parable right before verse 22. Look at verse 22. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, life is more than possessions. And so what we must do is save and prepare, and we're responsible because the Scriptures tell us to do that. But we should do that in a way that still keeps my trust and my hope in the provision of what God is going to give to me and recognizing Him as the giver of what I have. Third, save for the future with your eyes on eternity. Save for the future with your eyes on eternity. Jesus says in verse 20, Fool, this night your your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. This really echoes Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15, where Solomon writes, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry in his hand. We've seen the bumper sticker probably that says, He who dies with the most toys wins. Ecclesiastes 5 and Luke 12 teaches us that he who dies with the most toys still dies. And he can't take any of it with him. As we're building for the future, as we're preparing for the future, we should also be making eternal investments. And we don't want to save up so much for the might bees in this world that we forget to make big investments in the next. And so we need to save with our eyes on eternity. Randy Alcorn has written a great little book called The Treasure Principle. We have it here on our resource shelf, and we really would love for every person in this room to read The Treasure Principle. It's a little small book. You can read it in just a few hours, but man, it is just chock full of spiritual gold. And he writes in there, I don't want to be a poor fool, by not planning for the future. But I also don't want to be a rich fool by over-planning for it. Above all, I want to make plans for the right future, the eternal one. I want to ask how each investment will be paying off, not just 30 years from now, but 30 million years from now. I have a really good friend who is a very smart man, a very well-resourced man. The Lord has blessed him and his family very much. And then we have very intimate conversations with each other about our lives and what God is doing in our lives. And I'm, I'm struck by something he shared with me recently. He said, you know, we have it set up with all of our inheritance money. Like once we go, like we've set this up in our will that, that we're not giving any of that money to any of our family. And they're in a unique position. But it's just something to think about. See, we're not leaving behind wealth for our family who many of them wouldn't know how to spend it anyway. And they have just written into their will that all of their wealth, all of their resources is going to mission boards and seminaries and agencies. 
because it can be spread out for the coming generations. I'm not saying that's the right answer for everyone, but it's the mentality that we build wealth for the kingdom and not simply for ourselves or for those who wouldn't know what to do with it. Lastly, save for the future without ignoring real need today. Save for the future without ignoring real need today. Again, Jesus says, whose are these going to be? And then he says, he rebukes him for laying up treasure for himself and not being rich towards God. Friends, there are real needs in this world today. And yes, we can look at poverty and we can look at world hunger. We can look at the gospel need in places where the gospel is not being preached. And you hear us talking about that often and we want to keep that before you. But I also want you to think about the real needs within your circles. There are family members who may need assistance. There are meals that may need to be supplied. I may have a real opportunity to help a brother or help a sister who is on hard times right now. And it would be ungodly and unwise to be so focused on my planning and my financial goals if I have something today that could be shared with a real life in my sphere of influence. And we have to keep those things in balance. And I'm not here to tell you exactly what you should do in every circumstance. The Spirit of God resides in you. Listen to Him and follow His leading and prompting. But what I do want to point us towards is that we can't be so focused on our storehouses and our personal goals that we ignore real needs around us today. Alcorn goes on to say, are we truly obeying the command to love our neighbor as ourselves? If we're storing up money for potential future needs when our neighbor is laboring today under actual present needs, I realize this is a troubling and threatening question. Believe me, it bothers me to ask it. Let me share my heart with you before we close this morning. As I have prepared these messages and gone over them again uh, and again and even this week, I know that when we start talking about money and finances, there exists a myriad of responses in this room. There are some of us who have grown up with great means. There are others of us who have grown up with very little there are those who have been very responsible with money, and there are those who have been very foolish with money. Here's what I want to keep in perspective. In no shape, form, or fashion is the goal of this message series to teach you how to get wealthy or to teach you how to thrive with earthly wealth. That's not the goal. And even with all of these truths that we're looking at, the standard for you is not to be American middle class. See, that's become our standard in America, hasn't it? Everyone has to be in the middle class. That's an American principle and truth. It's not a biblical principle and truth. There are very faithful, wise stewards who live on fixed incomes. There are very faithful and wise stewards who get some form of government assistance. And so what I want you to hear me say in this is not that the American middle class is your goal or that ultimate, ultimate earthly wealth is your goal. No, the goal here is your heart. The goal here is your heart before God and that you're using this commodity 
that God has entrusted to you, that you're using it wisely for His glory, for you, you and your family's needs, and for the advance of His mission around the globe. That's our goal. And again, we're here to help you, and we're here to walk alongside of you. But going back to the beginning, don't buy the lie that says, singing Christian songs and reading the Bible and serving on mission, that's spiritual work. Everything else God doesn't care about. As we've seen from the scriptures today, God cares about how you work. He cares about how you make money, how you spend it, and how you save it. And so, as we've done every week in this series, here's the bottom line. Growing in our approach to saving money is a crucial part of Christian discipleship. It's a part of your discipleship. And God cares about it, and so you should too. So here's our prayer. Father, as we have continually prayed through this series, transform our hearts to glorify you with our work and money. And Father, we continue to pray this morning, recognizing that you are the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills. You've created all money. You grow all wealth. You are the God who gives, and you are the God who takes away. And so, Father, today, we just humble ourselves before you and recognize we have nothing were it not for you. And so we worship you today and we look to you as our provider, as our king, our shepherd, and we say that we have nothing that you yourself have not given us. And Father, we thank you today that the greatest gift that you've given us is your son Jesus, who ultimately came so that we could live with you and have the spiritual richness of heaven for all of eternity. And so, Lord, today, help us be wise with our money. But, Lord, help us, help us love spiritual wealth and eternal wealth more than the earthly. And because of that, I pray that regardless of how much wealth we get on this earth, may we leverage it for your glory and the good of the gospel and the good of others. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.